0: Well, let's spend a few minutes uh, meditating on the fact that our Lord went up to heaven on the 40th day. As Christopher has pointed out, uh, the, the Ascension Day tends sort of to get lost. Uh, for some reason, December 25th often falls on a weekday, uh, but the whole culture celebrates Christmas. Uh, I know a number of of people who would say that Easter is their favorite holiday in the church's year. My dad told me that a few weeks ago. Our our daughter Esther has also uh, told us recently and she likes Easter best of all. There's something about the freshness of new life and and spring around the corner uh, that uh, makes Easter special as well as the fact that uh, we're remembering the new life and the new creation uh, that God has introduced us into through raising His Son from the dead, uh, but then we tend to forget, don't we? Uh, I suppose it is because Ascension Day falls on a Thursday. Uh, Ten days later comes Pentecost, uh, and so we 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 often uh, get are more interested in <clears throat> those holidays that the culture is aware of. Uh, but actually, Ascension Thursday, uh, the Lord's Ascension and the day of Pentecost, form a pair, uh, much in the way that his death and his resurrection, Good Friday and Easter, form a pair. He died and he rose. You need both sides of that coin to have the reality. Uh, likewise, uh, God raised him to his right hand in heaven, and then shortly thereafter, he poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, or as, as John's Gospel puts it, uh, Jesus departed uh, and then he didn't leave us orphans. He gave us the Holy Spirit uh, to be another aid, even as Jesus had been our aid uh, sent from God for our salvation. Uh, when he had to leave, uh, the, the heavens had to receive him, then God uh, sent the Holy Spirit to be a new aid Uh, in place of Jesus. And so Ascension and Pentecost uh, come hand in hand, uh, or hand in glove. Uh, And in fact, both of our readings uh, from Luke and from Acts uh, highlight that connection, don't they? Uh, Luke 24 uh, shows us a scene when Jesus is still with his disciples uh, and there he talks about how they're supposed to stay in the city until he pours out the gift the promise of the father upon them and they're going to become it's going to empower them to become witnesses and the same uh, themes are struck then in Luke in Acts chapter 1 uh, when when Luke takes up his narrative again uh, by the way one of the uh, one of the curious things uh, Facts is that Luke alone, of all the writers of the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we have the 13 epistles of Paul, and then we have a bunch of general epistles at the end of the New Testament canon, 27 books in all. Uh, But of all those authors and all those books, only Luke is the one who tells us uh, the story, the actual story with chronological information about how Jesus was taken up. Uh, On the 40th day, Uh, the other books of the New Testament refer to the fact that he's at the right hand of the father or that God has set him as king uh, over uh, the world that he made. Uh, But Luke alone tells us the actual story, Uh, just kind of a curious fact uh, to place on the table. In talking about uh, or in thinking about uh, the ascension today, we should add one more word, put one more word on the table. uh, And that is the word session, the fact that he not only has ascended into the heavens, uh, but now he is sitting. Uh, So his ascending and his sitting uh, are very much uh, all of a piece, uh, one reality. Uh, and that's why uh, Psalm 110 was chosen by the liturgical committee as, uh, as one of the choices for the psalm for today. That's the psalm that talks about God making him uh, his co-regent. You will sit at my right hand uh, until I put your enemies under your feet. So we're, we're thinking of his ascending into heaven and his sitting then, taking his place at the right hand of his father. Uh, this event marks uh, the inaugural phase of the, of the final kingdom of God. Uh, if we go way back to the beginning of the Bible, the opening chapters in Genesis, right there in Genesis chapter one, remember as soon as God creates Adam and Eve, Uh, He he blesses them, and he says, you're to have dominion over everything I've made. So God placed the human race uh, in a position of ruling God's creation on God's behalf. Uh, Adam and Eve were meant to be, shall we say, co-regents with God, stewards of God, uh, exercising God's own rule over God's creation, uh, and developing the creation for the glory of God. Uh, Of course, uh, sin came into the picture, uh, and that meant uh, with it that God had to place the creation under a curse uh, instead of the initial blessing. Uh, And so we see history going on, nation uh, getting after nation in war. Uh, Human beings have been messing up. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve fell. Uh, so God sent his own son into the world uh, in order to restore his plan uh, and bring the creation to the destiny that he intended for it. Uh, and so God had promised to the to the Jewish people: uh, you know, there's going to be a king. Uh, in fact, uh, the king of Judah uh, from from David and Solomon onwards, all those kings were regarded as God's Uh, co-regents. That's what uh, anointing was all about. Uh, The the custom of smearing some oil on the head uh, of the person who was stepping into, uh, uh, stepping into the, uh, the incumbency of that office We we speak of Psalm 110 as one of the coronation Psalms uh, because we think it might have been used on more than one occasion. Uh, When when David would hand on uh, the baton to his son Solomon and Solomon becomes the new king, uh, it may be that Israel used Psalm 110 uh, as one of the hymns, one of the poems uh, in celebration of that event because. Uh, the the new king then uh, is making the claim. Uh, Let's look at it again here. Uh, God has said to me, God has given a decree uh, undergirding, this is the ideology uh, that undergirds uh, the Judean monarchy. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So uh, the, the new king of Judah is elevated into a position where he now will be exercising God's authority over God's people. Uh, and so he's said to sit at the right hand of God. Uh, and together with that, he also steps into a kind of priesthood in antiquity. Often the king was, was a priest. Uh, he would carry out some sacrifices. Uh, and that had been the case in the city of Jerusalem for uh more, probably more than a thousand years at least, uh, before David ever came along, because way back in the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham met someone whose name was Melchizedek, uh, who was said to be the priest king of God Most High, uh, and he's the priest of Salem, of Jerusalem, old Jebusite Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, when, when Solomon succeeded to David He not only became the king, but he became the new Melchizedek. He stepped into that office uh, of being both the king and the priest over uh, the nation of God. Uh, And and in Psalm 110, we have God himself giving oracles, saying, this is my plan. This This is the person I want to have in this position, and I'm granting him a share in my own authority to act on my behalf. So that when Jesus, uh, after doing his earthly work, uh, stepped into that office, uh, this is kind of the initiation uh, of the full exercise of all his messianic uh, power. Uh, We know that at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down as a dove and rested upon him, Uh, And so in the same way that David was anointed before he became king, uh, Jesus also was anointed before he stepped into his messianic office. Uh, But there's another analogy, uh, because uh, to to step into an office doesn't mean uh, that the going is necessarily going to be clear uh, for any king. Uh, Going back into 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, we see that when Solomon uh, became king after his father David, kind of interesting to read how the narrative sits in in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Uh, you know, up up to that point, David has given a commission to Solomon: Be sure you, uh, be sure you keep the ways of God, and and he'll bless you. Uh, And then in verse 12, we read, so Solomon sat upon the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So that's the beginning of his reign. And yet, uh, chapter 2 goes on then, and it outlines a number of enemies uh, whom Solomon had to overcome uh, before he could really be king, as it were. Uh, There were a number of people who had been enemies of David. Uh, First of all, there's Adonijah, uh, Solomon's older brother. Uh, who who thought he was going to be king, and then Solomon was chosen instead. So there's a rivalry, uh, and Adonijah makes an inappropriate request, uh, and and therefore Solomon has to move to have him executed. Uh, And then there's the old priest, Beathar, who had served David, uh, but became a supporter of Adonijah uh, at the last minute. Uh, And David's former general, Joab, Uh, who had committed several murders and actually stained David's garments with blood, as David puts it. Uh, And then Shimei, uh, the man who had uh, shouted curses upon David, uh, as David was driven temporarily out of Jerusalem uh, and and out of his kingship uh, before his return. And so all these enemies had to be dealt with one after the other. And then finally, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 2, Uh, We have the final verse in that chapter, verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Well, I thought thought verse 12 had already told us that, that his kingdom was established. So uh, the king sits on his throne, but his enemies have to be overcome before he can actually have an established kingdom. And that's kind of uh, the position in which Jesus is right now. Now, God has exalted him to his right hand in heaven, but uh, the enemies of God are still active in the world. They still have some role. Uh, if we go to the book of Revelation, we see uh, that the dragon uh, and his angels are given a certain amount of time in which to work uh, before history will close. Uh, and so we're at that. We're in this uh, temporary, this first phase of God's final kingdom, uh, when Jesus has been received into the heavens, and he has real authority, and yet uh, in the plan of God, it's not yet time uh, for that kingdom to be manifested on earth. Uh, so let's just uh, reflect on this a little bit. You know what, what is he really up to? Uh, it's a fair question. Uh, we Christians say Jesus reigns, and yet when we look around at the world, does it look like he's reigning? Uh, do we see uh, universal justice uh, in the nations? Uh, do we see uh, people granted health uh, and, and eternal life as we know is promised? Uh, it, w- it looks for all the world as though, you know, uh, one could be forgiven uh, even for for doubting and for wondering whether Jesus is doing anything at all. Uh, so what does what does the language about reigning? Uh, what meaning does it really have uh, in our world today, uh, and what effect does it have on our lives? Uh, this is this is what we have to try to establish. Now going back uh, to our two passages uh, in Luke and in Acts, uh, I think there are some hints here about uh, what this first phase of Jesus' final reign uh, is all about. Uh, Last paragraph in Luke's gospel, uh, he points out, thus it is written, I'm in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, There's Good Friday and Easter, uh, that pair of events. And then verse 47 moves us into the the current phase of the kingdom and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so this first phase of Jesus' reign is characterized not by his acting as a geopolitical, uh, military uh, type of messiah. Uh, That's all yet to come, uh, but rather it's characterized by his commissioning the church to proclaim his death and resurrection and the effects that they have. Why is this? Uh, And why does the the final kingdom of God have to come in two phases like this? I call it an invisible phase, followed by a full manifestation at the end of time. Why do we have to talk about the kingdom of God coming already, but not yet? Uh, It's here, but it isn't really here uh, fully. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Well, it's because we as human beings, going back to Genesis again, uh, God has, 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 has given us a life that has a couple of different dimensions to it, call it vertical and horizontal. Uh, we have a relation to God and we have a relation to the world in which he's placed us. Sin spoiled our relationship to God and it also spoiled our relationship with those around us. Uh, And so we have a vertical problem and we have a horizontal problem, Uh, and the promise is that God's kingdom uh, is uh, is the restoration uh, of what humanity is meant to be uh, in both of those dimensions. And so our relationship with God has to be cleaned up, we have to be justified, we have to be sanctified, uh, but also our relation to the world, to, to one another. Uh, Human relations need to be reconciled, uh, and so forth. Now, uh, obviously, both of those things have to happen. Uh, And the first coming of Jesus was meant to deal with the vertical. The second coming of Jesus will deal with the horizontal. And logically, it has to happen in that order, because if you stop and think about it, our relation with God is more fundamental than our relation to one another. Uh, And so uh, there has to be an unseen phase in which God is healing the human heart uh, before there can be uh, a complete coming of the kingdom of God in power. Uh, Some some years ago, a Reformed theologian at Westminster Seminary wrote a short little book, uh, but uh, it has an importance out of all proportion to its short length, And the title is all I want to talk about here. He called it Redemption Accomplished and Applied. If you stop and think about it, you know, uh, redemption had to be established, had to be done objectively before it could be applied. And so, redemption accomplished has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. In his death, he made atonement for sin. In his resurrection, God uh, established the beachhead of the new creation. But what good is the gift until it's given? Uh, it has to be applied. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the women of our church enjoyed some scones made by one of the members. Uh, it's one thing to bake those scones. It's another thing to deliver them uh, to all the people For whom they're intended. Uh, The the gift has to be accomplished and then applied, Um, and so Good Friday and Easter take us through uh, the accomplishment of redemption, uh, but Ascension and Pentecost have to do with applying it. Uh, Jesus had to be raised into heaven and give the Holy Spirit Uh, so as to mobilize the church into his agent for applying what he's done to the world uh, uh, that's waiting for it and needing it. Uh, And and the reason why this first phase of the kingdom is invisible is because the kingdom of God comes initially uh, within the human heart, as he put it, Uh, just a few chapters earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, uh, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, doesn't have a location in time or space, because it begins in the human heart, that's that vertical relationship to God, Uh, and it spreads outward from there. So what is Jesus actually doing? What is he up to right now? I'm gonna pull in a few other scriptures than the ones we read, Uh, First of all, he's making intercession for us. Now that the cross uh, has established that we are redeemed people, uh, we need its cleansing on a daily basis. And so in a place like Hebrews 7, uh, verses 24 and 25, we read uh, that he holds his priesthood. uh, This is his Melchizedekian priesthood. Uh, He holds that permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if and when we fall into sin, even though we're already redeemed, even though we're already the people of God, we still live in a realm in which we're subject uh, to temptation sin and death Uh, we have this great confidence that he always lives to make intercession for us he can always take redemption accomplished and remind his father of that on our behalf Uh, a point that's made a little bit differently in the book of first john uh, but it's the same idea uh, first john chapter 2 my little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sin. So uh, we're not supposed to sin as believers, but even when we do, we have this confidence that we have an advocate, uh, a parakletos in the Greek, uh, a legal aid. Uh, an attorney for the defense, someone who will take our part and go to the Father and plead our case with him because propitiation has been made once and for all, Uh, the blood has been shed, and therefore uh, we uh, are free and forgiven in Christ. Uh, What else is he up to? Uh, That's that's his role vis-a-vis the church. Uh, Vis-a-vis the rest of the world, however, uh, there are enemies out there, and so we get some very vivid imagery uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, First of all, uh, there's the picture of uh, the people of God giving birth to a boy child who is destined to be caught up to God. Uh, The woman She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. There's the ascension. The very next thing that happens, uh, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. They were defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. uh, And the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So uh, the ascension of Jesus, uh, besides uh, inaugurating his kingdom, it initiates the final fling of the enemies of God, uh, as they have their last chance to do their worst, and this uh, sets up spiritual warfare. And so, have we seen, uh, as we look at the history of the church down through the last two thousand years, uh, it's been uh, spiritual warfare all the way. Uh, so, for example, uh, in First, in Second Corinthians. Chapter 10. Uh, Paul puts it this way Though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, This is his apostolic ministry. And it's the ministry that Christ has given to all of us who are members of his church. Uh, it takes place as we do what he said in the Ascension passages. As the Holy Spirit empowers us and we go forth as witnesses uh, to counter this world, uh, spiritual warfare is joined and as the gospel does its work, as the Holy Spirit turns hearts to him and people uh, are drawn to faith and repentance, in that way, God's initial phase uh, of, the, of the final kingdom uh, is, uh, is manifested in that there are conversions, in that human hearts are healed. Uh, this is the, the first phase that has to take place uh, to prepare the way Uh, for the final, full, visible manifestation of his kingdom at the end of time. Now, I brought along, I I hope I can share my screen and that this will work all right. Uh, I brought along a few. uh, This this is a stained glass image from the Queen's College in Oxford. That's where I studied back in the mid-1980s. Uh, this is a window that's in the front of the chapel, uh, up uh, high up on the right side, uh, and you can see it represents Ascension Day. Uh, this is Acts Chapter 1, uh, and the, the amusing thing about it is the two feet, right, uh, going up into the cloud. Uh, this was pointed out to me by the chaplain, Peter Southwell, uh, during my first year there, uh, a kind of a unique stained-glass window. This also is from the Queen's College. Uh, it's on the ceiling, uh, and it too represents the ascension, but from a different perspective. It shows Christ uh, going up into the heavenly realms where he's being seen by angels, as uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 puts it. To Singapore, Uh, one of the newer statues of Jesus that has been erected. Uh, But what I like about this picture is that it captures a little detail uh, that it would be easy uh, to gloss over in Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24, 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So I love this picture uh, of Christ raising his hands in blessing. So, you know, in the in the previous photo, the one from the Queen's College, you miss you miss the blessing because I guess we have to assume his hands are still raised, but all we see is his feet because he's going into the cloud. And then the final picture is probably the the best known one of all the the statue in Rio de Janeiro uh, of Christ blessing the world. And what I like about this is that it has him high above the world with his hands still stretched out in blessing, uh, indicating that this is kind of his posture toward us as his church. Uh, God has raised him on high and initiated this first phase of his reign. Uh, And so it's it's not yet the plan of God, you know. uh, The the disciples asked him, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, And he said, well, uh, it's not for you to know uh, times that the father has fixed in his own authority. He doesn't say we're not doing the kingdom. Uh, He he just says, uh, now isn't the time uh, for, for us to see an earthly uh, hegemony of Israel, uh, but he is in heaven, he is there, and he has commissioned us and empowered us by his Holy Spirit to begin the work uh, of reclaiming human hearts for him, and his hands are still stretched out in blessing over us as we do it. Uh, As Matthew puts it, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go forth and make disciples of all nations. Uh, So that's that's what the ascension is all about. Taking the redemption that's already accomplished as of AD 30. uh, And giving the church power under him to do his work uh, of, of witnessing and uh, calling people to repentance uh, so that uh, people can have eternal life. Uh, Or as John 5 puts it, uh, capturing both uh, the present and the future aspects uh, of his kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's what's taking place right now as the gospel is being preached in the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. Dead people, people who are spiritually dead, that's all of us at one time, uh, and much of the world yet today, uh, people who are spiritually dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it, are coming to life for as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Don't marvel at this. The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And when that event takes place, that will, Inaugurate the second phase, the final phase, the permanent phase of God's kingdom. Uh, So those are some pictures uh, just to kind of stamp in the truth uh, of his reign at the right hand of God. So he, he makes intercession for us as we have need. And he holds out his hands in blessing over us during this present phase of the kingdom, empowering us uh, to to reclaim human hearts uh, and bring our friends and our neighbors and our acquaintances uh, to new life in him. That's what what, uh, his ascension and his current session is all about. Uh, After all, back in Psalm 110, uh, when, when he sits at God's right hand, the promise is uh, you're to reign uh, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, and so as Paul puts it uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15:25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's a process and it's ongoing right now and we're the participants in it. Well, God bless us as we take this truth uh, of, all, of all the series of events that we confess in the creed. <clears throat> his becoming flesh, his dying, his rising from the dead, his ascending into heaven and sitting there uh, until his return. Uh, you know, which of those events is the one under which we're living right now? It's the fact that he has ascended and is sitting at God's right hand. That's the part of the creed that's directly applicable. Uh, All the other parts uh, become ours uh, through this fact as well, of course. Uh, He became incarnate so that he could die. He died so that atonement would be made. He rose uh, so that we could have new life. And all of that then is captured as he now sits at God's right hand, So just a few thoughts on the Ascension and what it should mean for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.